Hi everyone, uh, this week we had a really great conversation with John Van Skoik. It was so good that we went way past our normal recording time, so uh, for your convenience we've divided this into two episodes, and this is the first episode. We're going to talk about a lot of interesting topics, uh, including the Brookline Comprehensive Plan. So if you like this episode, tune in again next week because we're going to have more. Thursday, December 16th, 2021. This is Avi Kaufman. And I'm Ron Scharf. And this is Accent Insights. So today we're going to do something a little bit special. We've invited a, a member of Brookline Select Board to come and talk to us about things that are of interest to Brookline generally and real estate in particular. Uh, we have a very special guest, John Van Skoik. This is actually... Uh, his second time on our podcast, but the first time as a member of the select board. So he appeared on our podcast and then he got elected to select board. I'm not saying cause and effect, but uh, you know, you can deduce your own uh, conclusions there. But John, it's, it's an honor to have you on our podcast uh, and to have you a second time. And uh, so thank you for joining us. And before we go into it, I just wanted to mention to our to all of our listeners that John has a remarkable uh, weekly email newsletter that shines a light on Brookline government and how things work. If you're interested in things going on in Brookline and how things work, it is uh, required reading. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can sign up for that, for his newsletter at goodgovernmentforbrookline.com. And it really is a, uh, a really remarkable newsletter for a local government. It, it is. It's a great window into what's going on. I think people generally don't know what's going on or don't even know how to figure out what's going on. So John's blog is excellent for that. John, could, could you could we start by just a little a small description of how Brookline government works? We have the select board. Many people have heard of town meeting. We don't have a mayor. Could you give us a little overview of what's going on? Sure. Uh, and uh, but I want to first say it's um, nice to be thought of as a little bit special. So you know, I don't know whether the well, we give you the opportunity on... to become extremely special, but we you know yeah. I, I don't know whether the emphasis is on special or a little bit, but. <laughs> <laughs> And and I do want uh, listeners to know that there, there actually is a cause and effect. And if they come on the show, they will be the next member of the select board in Brookline. So, you know, people should keep that in mind. And, and We're the uh, new power brokers in town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should be like begging for an invitation to come on the next podcast. Um, all right. So uh, I'm so glad you reminded me that I, I actually hadn't been elected to the select board the last time I appeared on your show. So we have a town meeting form of government in Brookline. It is sort of as old as New England itself in one sense. It is the form of government that we started out with many years ago, um, and it remains our form of government today. It has evolved over time. Uh, you know, it used to be basically the 100 or 200 or 300 or 500 people of the town would themselves gather up for a meeting and decide issues and budgets and that kind of stuff. Today, you know, we are a town of some 64,000 people, and we have what's called a representative town meeting. Uh, Brooklyn was the first municipality in Massachusetts to adopt a representative town meeting. Simply means that when you get too big for everybody to show up for the meeting, you start picking, you know, representatives to show up. So we have 15 members uh, of town meeting each from 16 precincts. And they are the legislative body, you know, think of them kind of as the Congress. And so uh, what does what else does Brookline have? It has an executive. And under a town meeting form of government, um, the executive 
in most municipalities that are town meeting forms of government is something called the select board. Um, and sometimes it's called the town council, uh, but it's more often called the select board. And uh, it used to be referred to as the select men. I mean, that shows you how archaic um, these institutions are, going back to the days when only men could vote. But it's now the select board. It's five people. Um, it is the executive, but it's not an all-powerful executive because we have also in Brooklyn what's known as a strong town uh, administrator form of government. And the, the real executive is the town administrator, Mel Kleckner. And the select board is five individuals who run for office um, once every three years, uh, two of us, then two of us again, and then a single person from the board. Um, and we hope to be kind of the sounding board and the policymakers who both advise and in some cases direct um, the town administrator and then also initiate things through town meeting, which we then try to get town meeting to agree to uh, approve. So I think something that isn't always clear is where the line is drawn between what the select board can do and what town meeting needs to, to approve or do. Um, how would you describe the difference there? Yeah, a uh, very important distinction and one that is, um, you know, it's a little bit of a matter of interpretation. It's also a matter of consulting Massachusetts statutes, uh, which kind of lay these things out. But as I said, primarily town meeting is intended to be legislative. Um, if, if you go to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website um, and look up what what the Secretary of the Commonwealth says about town meetings, you know, he says they are legislative. And then he says, or not he, but the, the office says um, their primary responsibility is to adopt the budget. And I think if people sort of focus on that, it'll help them to better understand uh, town meeting. That is the primary responsibility. Um, there are actions taken by town meeting, which, you know, are sort of quasi executive actions, like they will petition the select board to um, create a new department or create a new department um, position, uh, department head position, or to increase um, staffing, uh, add social workers or something such as that. But there's a predicary that the town moderator uses. I won't get into the town moderator position, but um, which essentially says those petitions are like prayers. They basically say, you know, we pray you to do this. Um, okay. <laughs> they don't, they don't direct. Um, and, you know, I think that's a distinction, which, you know, is, is not always easy to accept for town meeting, but um, to the extent possible, I hope they will accept that not every resolution that directs the select board to do something requires that the select board do that. When you say that one is is executive and one is legislative, so it's so it initially it sounded like select board doesn't need to ratify the things that the town meeting decides, but but since the things that the town meeting decides are in the form of prayer, uh, and yeah, well, not if it's a resolution, if it's labeled a resolution, and uh -huh. you know, and a fair number of the articles that are dealt with by town meeting um, each session are resolutions. But then town meeting can also adopt new bylaws um, and, you know, put into the bylaws of the town things like, you know, a ban on uh, 
leaf blowers except during the hours of whatever to whatever, you know, during certain months of the year um, and all, all manner of, of local bylaws. Even those have to be within the boundaries of what the state allows municipalities to govern. So, for example, we adopted a bylaw and a very good one in terms of its intent, which was to require that all future building in Brookline, all future new building, um, be not connected to gas. And that was reviewed by the attorney general, who, for you know, understandable reasons, dealing with the state building code and with state laws, ruled that that was across uh, the boundary in terms of the state's requirements that that matter of building codes be left to statewide interpretation. And so if it's going to be a change in the building code of that nature, you know, it needs to be done in, at the state level um, in the state building codes. I didn't mean to suggest that the town meeting is only to deal with the budget, but if you start with the budget and if you think about how often the most important battles in Congress are the battles that are fought over the budget, I think that'll sort of help to understand why the town meeting's role in the budget process is probably their most important contribution to local government. Does so does if the town if town meeting adopts a new bylaw, does the select board have to ratify that or that's just town meeting's purview and if they do it it's Oh no, that's absolutely it becomes the law of the town. Uh-huh. Um the the attorney general does have review of these matters and so the attorney you know, general but not the select yeah, board. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, <laughs> I didn't say anything about courts um, because we don't sort of as a local form of government, um, we don't really have our own version of what is a judiciary system. But um, there is a court system. Uh, you know, it's a county Massachusetts state court system. And it, it does allow people the avenue of appeal that if they think a bylaw violates the Massachusetts Constitution um, or the federal Constitution, they can sue. And so we are currently sort of in the shadow of a lawsuit or a threatened lawsuit by the tobacco industry having to do with a bylaw that was adopted um, a couple of sessions ago, um, having to do with the age limit for being allowed to purchase tobacco. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one, but it's a very, very interesting um, approach that Brookline took to tobacco regulation, which was uh, to say, okay, we get it that you can set a, an, an allowable age limit for purchases of tobacco, but you can't ban purchases of tobacco, at least not yet. But what if we keep raising the age limit every year so that essentially if if you were born after, I think it's after January 1st in the year 2000, you will not be eligible to purchase tobacco for your entire lifetime because um, on on the date that it was adopted, you were already 21 and you're going to be 22 next year and 23 the year after that. And the age is going to keep going up eventually when only people who were born after 2000 are still alive. There will be nobody who can buy tobacco in Massachusetts. And that's being challenged by the tobacco industry. Yeah, it's an interesting um, thing. You know, we live in a a very uh, dense, especially North Brookline is a very dense uh, urban suburban mix and uh, over over decades, the the what's the side of the acceptable has changed. But trying to get people together to decide what's best for your community, whether small or large. Let's go a little bit larger, because mm. uh, Brookline is currently in discussions of a new comprehensive plan for the whole town. And can you talk a little bit about 
sort of what that is and, you know, where we are in that process, if anywhere. And, and we haven't had one for since like the last one ended like six years ago, right? Right. The last one was 205 to 2015. 2005 to, to uh, 2015. Um, yeah, no, uh, we, we haven't had one for a while. Uh, and Brookline's not alone in that. You know, not all communities always have an up-to-date comprehensive plan. And they pretty much have similar debates, you know, in every single community whenever the question of a comprehensive plan comes up. You know, will it just go and sit on the shelf? Um, you know, will it be of use to the town? The Brookline discussion, I think, has been prompted largely by the very important priority that's being given to adding to housing stock and, um, you know, addressing the need for more housing generally um, in the greater Boston area, but within that more housing that's affordable. And that discussion and that focus has led to a lot of discussion of things like changing Brookline's parking minimums as an incentive to maybe developing um, more units. Uh, it's led to discussions of things like micro unit development. Um, it's led to discussions of what they call uh, T-pods, um, which are you know transportation-focused uh, zoning that uh, gives incentives to developers to intensify the number of units if they're within short distance of public transportation. And people looked at that and said, wait a minute, you know, Brookline is about more than just housing. <laughs> Brookline is about um, open space. It's about walking, biking, parks and playgrounds and so on. So uh, we can't ignore the fact that while we're making these decisions about housing, those decisions have implications for all of these other things. Um, and so we've so got to look at Brookline comprehensively. Um, and we've got to look at how zoning changes that are aimed at incentivizing something in the arena of housing impact other of the quality of life considerations that are important to Brookline. Is the comprehensive plan meant then just to be sort of a an overlay guide, sort of this is what we as a town think our priorities are so that when the planning board considers a housing situation or some redevelopment, they can say, oh, but let's go to the comprehensive plan and, and look at our other priorities. Is it is it just meant to keep everything sort of in the foreground or, you know, less in the background or, or somewhere in the discussion? Does it have any kind of authority over decisions as they're being made? How does it work? It's aimed at getting people to begin discussions along the lines of how do I feel about my neighborhood? And what would I like to have that I don't have in my neighborhood? And what, you know, what are the things about my neighborhood that I want to, to preserve? Um, and so if people then come to a consensus, like, you know, I like my neighborhood, but unlike other neighborhoods, we don't have the kids playground that some of the other neighborhoods have, or we're not within walking distance of some stores where I can just pick up a sandwich, you know, for dinner, or I can stop in at a restaurant. And it'd be great if that block that's, you know, uh, facing Beacon Street and three blocks from my house had a more interesting mix of retail um, in it. So people need to start with their immediate neighborhood and then figure out like what could be improved about the area in which they live. And then you got to look at the town as a whole and all of these neighborhood wants, right? 
and sort of figure out how do those fit together into a matrix that looks like the Brookline that we want. I suppose the challenge with that too is that the people who are deciding are the people who live in Brookline now, but this is a long-term plan. It will take several years to make the plan and then the plan's in place for 10 years or so. But the people that don't have a voice in that are people who will live here you know, in 15 years or could live here. Um, so so I, I see there's a tension there that on the one hand, there's certain things that are improvements, like uh, we want yeah. a playground or a walking path or more bike paths. But then there's there's the housing aspect too, which is where it intersects with us in real estate, where people who live here now who already own certainly have an incentive to, regardless of their motivation, there's an incentive to restrict housing because it increases the housing prices and benefits people who own already. But then it also makes it harder for more people to live here. And you know, whereas a generation ago, you might have said like a working professional or doctors could afford to live here. Now it's more like surgeons can afford to live here. Uh, that it's that it's just continually we're, we're ratcheting up the pressure on, and this is distinct from affordable housing, but the affordability of housing to people that um, are are working. Yeah, um, and that is a huge, huge question, um, and I think you put it well. Uh, and you know, to be honest with you, I don't know how you plan effectively for the next generation that's going to live here. You know, in other words, my answer to your question would be, well, you know, as best you can, you plan for the Brookline that you treasure and you think that they will treasure after you are gone and, you know, they arrive, whoever they are, but then they have to plan for the Brookline they want. And if they want a completely different Brookline, um, you know, I'll be gone. I mean, what, you know, it's it's not for me to care. Uh, The only thing I can do is reflect the the reasons that people like me came to Brookline. And there's a lot of us. I mean, there's a lot of us in the sense of there's a lot of people who love Brookline and, and they love Brookline. Um, not, you know, absolutely the way it is. It's got to stay that way forever. But there are things they love about Brookline that hopefully um, will continue to be reasons that people love Brookline. And I, and I think, you know, in fairness, there are people who I think even in the, the among the people who live in Brookline, there's a tension. There are some people who feel there could be greater diversity if there was more housing. And even among the people who are here, there's not agreement um, about sort of what's right. But just getting to what you, you spoke about before on the comprehensive plan, you talked about sort of starting with very local interests. How do those local interests find a voice into this comprehensive plan? And then how do those interests get evaluated and then harmonized into one great plan? How does this work? Well, um, I I will give you an answer with but with a caveat, which is that there are people who could give you a much better answer. I mean, Linda Pelkey, who's very familiar, she's a town meeting member. She was one of the initiators of this push for a comprehensive plan. They could give you a better answer, but I'll I'll give you my best answer, uh, which is to look to the often cited example of Somerville, Um, which went through a comprehensive planning process called Summer Vision. It led to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, sort of focus group type conversations, you know, from all over the city within guidelines that were set for the conversations. You know, why are we having these conversations? What do we want to achieve through these conversations? 
Um, and then at the end of that process, which went on for about 10 years, and we don't want to go 10 years in Brookline, we, we're hoping for a process that will maybe wrap up in about three years, there was sort of an emerging update of kind of how we're feeling about our community today and what it has that we want to keep and what it lacks that we want to add. And then, you know, then the plan itself serves as a guide for the people who make the various decisions. Right, or does it right. Have, and what's interesting is that, an overview? you know, it's almost like uh, a given that when you do a comprehensive plan at the end, people will say, eh, you know, nobody pays attention to the comprehensive plan. But that's not true. And the one that Brookline did, I urge people to look at it. They can find it on the town's website um, and they will find that there were follow up efforts uh, that were kind of dictated by the comprehensive plan that every five years or every three years, I think it was, there will be a look back. And they went and they did an actual grid, you know, where they showed of the things in the comprehensive plan that were set out as goals, which of them have we achieved? And a lot were achieved. There's a lot of change that happened in Brookline as a result of that 2005-2015 plan. Okay. Yeah. And I imagine there's a lot of tension in a plan that comprehensive where there's certain goals that are admirable in their own right, but will be uh, opposing to each other in some way. For example, um, an important part of, of Brookline, we have a lot of historic or at least old buildings, but they're not energy efficient and they're not uh, as dense as some other buildings. So that would oppose uh, a goal of advancing our environmental goals and advancing more housing. And uh, imagine that, you know, similarly, we don't want our streets clogged with cars and we want to promote, for example, uh, bike paths and walking paths, but also there's uh, limits to, to uh, how much a, a town can cut off roadways. How, how do you see that? Uh, well, I think uh, you touched on something which is critical, and that is that um, the perceived path towards, you know, a happy community that has what it wants in one, you know, year and one period of time is not necessarily the perception, you know, 15 years later or 20 years later. And some things change radically, and you, you put your finger on a couple of them. And in that case, um, you know, it's going to bubble up through that process I described that we're not the same community that we were 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And we're going to come up with a pretty different set of goals, some of which contradict the goals in the earlier comprehensive plan. I mean, this comprehensive plan is not, you know, a handcuff. Uh, I mean, it doesn't say you always have to have this same, these same goals in your next comprehensive plan. Um, there wouldn't be any point, you know, to the process if, if you just went with what was in the first plan. And a big one, which I think you've touched on it, is I don't think people today can even begin to appreciate how much preservation movement influenced uh, Brookline 30 years ago um, and how much Brookline kind of embodied uh, and was at the forefront of an entire movement of trying to save valuable architectural features of the town, valuable, let's say, historic parks. I mean, the fact that we had like, you know, at least one Olmsted Park in Brookline and we had this pedestrian bridge labeled, you know, the Olmsted footbridge, um, not necessarily designed by him, but, you know, <laughs> designed somehow, you know, in a way tangentially connected to his firm, um, that, people saw as very, very symbolically important 
pieces of preserved um, history of our town, but also preserved look and feel. You know, why, why was there the rebellion finally against Robert Moses, you know, and the way that he, you know, leveled, you know, whole parts of New York City? That was reflected in Boston, too. Why did the anti-highway movement spring up? All of that was reflected in uh, people in Brookline who really got behind historical preservation as an important part of who we are. And preservation, not just of this or that landmark building, but of, uh, of historic districts, you know, entire neighborhoods that were seen as culturally significant because they, they were from a um, moment in time <clears throat> which had its own sort of language. It had its own architectural language. It had its own street language in terms of the spacing of the, of the houses and, and, the way, and the way that they related to one another. And they said, this is worth saving. And one of the reasons they said it's worth saving is because there was suddenly um, springing up uh, this developer's initiative called McMansions, or you know, people pejoratively called them McMansions, taking what what are now in let's say historic neighborhoods in brookline and seen as the problem you know these nice houses from an earlier period in time that are comfortable and are about 3000 square feet on average you know a little less a little more those were actually um seen as worth saving because they were the preferred alternative to a 5,000 square foot house. And we had to create historic districts so that they wouldn't be leveled and generic McMansions, you know, put up in their place. So um, the reason we have historic districts is not because people were fighting against uh, greater density. It's because they were fighting against worse, lavish, consumption out of control uh, architecture. You know, the, 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 the irony now, of course, is um, that now they're used to prevent uh, new buildings. You touched on something that's, that, uh, you know, the preservation bylaw in Brookline doesn't really work very well for what it's intended to do. Um, you know, the, the, the town can put a developer on, on a hold for a year. Right. Um, and that's the leverage. Right. But there's no there's no there's no carrot with that stick. Right. You know, a developer can wait that out for a year and then you can demolish whatever you want, unless you're in a historic zone. But if you know, if the town really cared about I mean, obviously the town cares, but if the town wanted to do something more effective, there would be, you know, along with the OK, first you're on hold and now we're going to work with you and we're going to help you to preserve the elements that we think are worth preserving. Because what happens today in the town, and I, this is not where I was hoping this conversation would go, but since you sit here, we are talking it. like a real estate person. You, you may got <laughs> it, but I just want to say this because if the town really wanted to be effective with the, with the preservation bylaw, there would be something that went hand in hand with it to work with people rather than just, we're going to slam this one year hold on you, mm. um, which you can wait out. And then, you know, there could be zoning assistance, there could be we'll work with you, we'll, there could be lots of things to actually help developers or, you know, people who own this land to preserve whether entire buildings or elements of buildings or do something that actually, you know, advances preservation. Um, the one-year demolition hold just stops things for a year. Yeah, right. just to sort of um, extrapolate from that. So like if the town preservation uh, went to a developer and said, we see you put in this permit, this demo permit. So we're putting it on hold for a year. 
you can wait it out. Or uh, if you agree to uh, preserve the facade, we'll lift the ban and you can start as soon as you get the permit approved in like you know a month or whatever. Is, is that essentially what you're saying, Ron, that that would be well, I mean, more effective? Often, I, think there's, I think there needs to be more than that, right? I think that's actually implicit. Right, implicit in the one-year demo hold is, but the that lifts never get they never get lifted, right? Like the well, they, they can you can you can go and work with the town, but there's no the preservation department has no they don't have anything to give out other than lifting the stay. So the the closer you get to the end of the year, the less the stay is relevant. That's number one. Number two, it doesn't seem as someone who's touched in that process a little bit, it doesn't seem that the preservation department is interested in making that easy. They can't influence planning. They can influence, you know, departures from zoning and things like that. There's really very little they can do other than say, okay, this is good enough. You can get going. You know, what winds up being three to six months before you would have otherwise done it free of any uh, restrictions from at least this office. So it, you know, there's, it, it just seems like when you have a hammer, right, everything is a nail. Yeah. And all they have yeah. is that one hammer, and it seems they need more tools in their toolbox to really help with preservation. It's probably one of the least um, understood, most opaque, you know, parts of um, our local governance system. I have to also say, though, it, it, it's probably one of the more important ones. Um, uh, one of the things I have been struck by because I have made a habit of publishing every single day the list of every meeting that is going on, quote unquote, at Brookline Town Hall. And it's amazing how many of those are Preservation Commission meetings or Preservation Commission subcommittee meetings or Preservation Commission subcommittee site visits. Um, you know, if you added up all of the work done by the Preservation Commission and its subcommittees over the course of a year, you would be amazed. And yet the only people who sort of get what that means are people who've been through the process, like obviously Ron has. And I'm, I'm guessing Ron got burned, you know, by the process. I didn't get burned. I, you know, I just understood <laughs> that. Um, yeah, look, I'll give you an example of some developers who are not me, right? Yeah. They wanted to put a dormer on a house, you know, on the backside. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the preservation department, they trigger the bylaw on, you know, any, there's almost anything they think is historically significant. It doesn't have to be a name you recognize or anything in particular. In this case, you know, it was almost nothing that could be seen that yeah. illustrates the point. Um, you know, if you're going to cover up more than 25% of a home, I forget exactly what the current triggers for the bylaw are, but they wanted to put a large dormer on the backside of, a, of an old house on a block that wasn't particularly historic. It's not an historic district, nothing like that. And they had to wait a year, you mm -hmm. know, and it was sort of, what was the point of that? And there's no outreach on the part of the preservation department to sort of say, look, this is what we would like to see happen there. Or this is, it's all, okay, we've, we've, we've put the demo hold on and now you're free to come to us. You're free to put in money to develop plans that you think will influence us and you're free to come to us with those plans and we'll tell you whether we're, we care or not. It's not a discussion. It's not a, you know, it just doesn't seem like it's a uh, collaborative plan. It is, we have this hammer, you showed us a nail, we're gonna hit it into the wood and you know, you can either try and pry it out or you can wait until the wood disintegrates and you can, mm. you know, 
take your nail and do whatever you want with it. It's, uh, well, maybe it's one of those things that in the next comprehensive planning process, what will emerge maybe will be a, a modified version of the preservation process in the town right now. Because, you know, look, even I, an ardent preservationist who lives in a local historic district um, and has had to deal, you know, with like, I wanted to replace a window in the attic and, oh my God, you know, oh Lord, <laughs> you know, first, the first thing I have to find out is do they still make them, you know, that way, you know, that the, it's, it's got like rippled glass, you've got a problem. You yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah, exactly. Um, but putting that, putting that aside, uh, you know, I, I am, I am an ardent preservationist, but um, I'm also an ardent uh, climate change activist. And, you know, there are aspects of the, the future that we need to embrace when it comes to climate change sometimes does not match the goals of historic preservation of leaky old houses <laughs> that have yeah. gas heating systems, you know. Hey, everyone, it's Ron. Like Avi said in the beginning of the episode, we're going to stop here because it's a great natural breaking point. And please come back next week as we pick it up uh, with John Van Skoik and talk about uh, what happens when you have priorities that conflict, like preservation uh, versus climate change, and uh, pick up on other very important and interesting topics like affordable housing. We'll talk to you then. <laughs>